Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 9. We're continuing our series on discipleship, learning to disciple from Jesus and his example. Robert Morgan, speaking of the English Reformation, said it is a mistake to nail the English Reformation just to the door of King Henry VIII. While Henry broke relations with Rome, he still believed in Catholic doctrine. He just wanted Catholicism without a pope. The real English Reformation is better credited to a scholar at Cambridge University named Thomas Bilney, who embraced Reformation truth after reading Erasmus's Greek New Testament. Bilney gathered a group at Whitehorse Inn for secret Bible study and prayer. He was eventually found out and he perished in the flames at Norwich on August 19th, 1531. But not before influencing Hugh Latimer, a spiritual giant who is known as the apostle to the English. Latimer had bitterly opposed the Reformation, but Bilney, hearing him preach a scathing sermon at Cambridge against Lutheranism, sought him out and succeeded in persuading him otherwise. Soon Latimer was preaching the faith he once labored to destroy. As a result, he fell from favor during Henry's reign and spent time in the Tower of London. When Edward VI came to the throne, Latimer was released for ministry. But when Edward died, Latimer was among those caught and condemned by officials of Queen Mary. On October 16, 1555, he and Nicholas Ridley were tied back to back to a stake in Oxford and set aflame. Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, Latimer cried. Play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, I trust shall never be put out. End quote, end quote. And that is exactly what happened. These two men, by their deaths, lit the candle of the English Reformation. And it's amazing, but true, that Erasmus was just a Roman Catholic scholar. And for some strange reason, he had it in his heart to make a Greek Testament. You know, the Bible, the New Testament was written in Greek, but Latin was so accepted and was so popular that it had, Greek had kind of fallen out of use. And so he decided to get as many ancient manuscripts as he could, collect them all together, and then make his own Greek New Testament as close as he could to the original Greek text. And his Greek New Testament led Thomas Bilney to the Lord and opened his eyes to the gospel truth. Thomas Bilney then, a professor at Cambridge, gathered a discipleship group together and they had Bible study and prayer at the White Horse Inn. Now what's interesting is that even though this led to his eventual capture and death by being burned at the stake. Before he died, he led Hugh Latimer to the Lord. And Hugh Latimer was a spiritual giant. This guy was scary godly. And if you ever read the historical accounts, he was just, he was impeccable. He was meek. He was humble. He was godly. And he was absolutely fearless. 
So was Nicholas Ridley. And Latimer influenced and discipled many other men before being burnt at the stake and actually was discipling men and women while being burnt at the stake and going to the stake. As he walked to the stake, knowing that he was going to be tied up there and set on fire, he was calm. He was peaceful. There was not a hint of fear upon him. And he and Ridley were tied to the stake and burnt to death while the crowds rent the air with applause. As they marveled that these two men in their death merely prayed and quoted hymns to God. Now when you hear stories like that, it may seem kind of surreal to you. Because after all, that was a long time ago. That was pretty barbaric. Uh, people aren't being burned at the stake out here in the parking lot. And so you can kind of think to yourself that, you know, this is never going to happen today. Well, you know, if that's how you think, you, you need to change your thinking. Because it is happening today. In Muslim countries, in communist countries, in Hindu-controlled countries, people this very day are dying by the thousands for their faith in Christ every year. You know, I'm no economist and I'm not trying to predict the future. But, you know, it could be that our country is on the verge of an economic collapse. It could be that through a series of divine ordered events, our whole government system falls apart. There's anarchy. There's war. The laws are set aside. Evil men prevail and set up a society where Christians are to be hated. But even if that never happens, what do you read in the paper? What do you hear in the news? That our country is becoming more Accepting of Christianity, of God, of gospel truth and the Bible, and not in your life. Living as a Christian in the world, a real Christian, is dangerous. It's a dangerous proposition. And all Christians have to suffer persecution for living the truth. The Bible guarantees it. This morning, as we look at Luke 9, 1 through 11, a text that we've learned many great things from already, we're working through eight principles of discipleship that we can find from Jesus' example here. Last week, we looked at the first three, that you need to train your disciples to do ministry. Secondly, give your disciples opportunities to serve. And third, to teach them to trust God all the time while they serve, trusting in His all-sufficient grace. We saw this already, and this morning... We continue in our examination of what Jesus taught us in this text. So follow along as I read verses 1 through 11. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, neither a staff nor bag nor bread nor money, and do not even have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. 
And as for those who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard of all that was happening. And he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. And by some that Elijah had appeared. And by others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. Herod said, I myself had John beheaded. But who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. And when the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him and welcoming them. He began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who had need of healing. This morning, we will examine one more discipleship principle that we all need to know. We all need to understand and we all need to apply to our discipleship relationships. And it is this. You must teach your disciples to expect and respond properly to rejection and persecution. Look at verse 5. Jesus has told the disciples to trust God to provide for them as they go about preaching the gospel. And healing all manner of disease and sickness. He gave them that power too. And he says in verse 5, And as for those of you who do not receive you, as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. The phrase do not receive you means who do not welcome you, do not accept you, reject your teaching, do not want to show hospitality towards you. That's what Jesus is saying here. Jesus says, as you go out from that city, what does that imply? It implies that when they do not receive you, show hospitality to towards you, when they do not want to hear the gospel from you, you leave them. You exit the city. In fact, you could paraphrase this to emphasize the verb tense. You need to cause yourself to leave that city where no one is willing to receive you and hear the gospel of truth. This is an interesting evangelistic strategy, isn't isn't it? A little different than you hear today where people say, you know, you need to get some outside support and uh, you need to hunker down in some stronghold and uh, then you need to share the gospel surreptitiously and blend in and tell people about Jesus whenever you can sneak it in. And then see what happens. Jesus, though, says, leave. Leave them. As a matter of fact, if you look, he says, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. I don't know about you. I've read quite a bit about discipleship, and I've never read a book that says you need to shake your feet. In front of those who don't want to hear the gospel. You can see it at work, you know, you're at lunchtime and you're sitting with a guy there and you say, hey, you know, let me tell you about my faith. Now, listen, I don't want to hear that. (laughs) Fine. Have you ever read that? 
It makes you wonder, doesn't it? Vincent, in his word studies in the New Testament, says, quote, The very dust of the heathen country was uncleaned and it defiled by contact. It was regarded like a grave or like the putrescence of death. If a spot of heathen dust had touched an offering, it had to be burnt. The apostles, therefore, were not only to leave the house or city which should refuse to receive them, but it was to be considered and treated as if it were heathen, just as in the similar case mentioned in Matthew eighteen seventeen. And if you don't know that text, that is where we are told that after a person who falls into sin is confronted, if they don't repent and two or more go and they don't repent and the elders confront them and they don't repent then you tell it to the whole church and then if they don't repent that person is to be treated as what a gentile a pagan a godless person because they will not submit to the word of god He goes on to say, all contact with such must be avoided. All trace of it must be shaken off. The symbolic act indicated that the apostles and their Lord regarded them not only as unclean, but as entirely responsible for their uncleanness, end quote. So by shaking the dust, when Jesus says, shake the dust off your feet, what he's saying is, one... Don't even let a particle of their pagan, unbelieving, God-hating dust cling to you. Two, regardless of what they profess, let them know that they are rejecting God's truth and are really godless pagans. And three, that by doing this, you're telling them that your blood is on your own head because you refuse to receive the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel of your salvation. That's what that means. Now you might be wondering, well, Jack, you know, I understand that Jesus is telling the 12 here and they were apostles, but, you know, is this something that should be practiced a little bit more than just, you know, should we be doing this? We'll turn over to Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, we have another instance. I know that this... Chapter is only one chapter away, but it kind of seems far away, doesn't it? (laughs) It does to me. And instead of sending out the 12 here, he's sending out 70 to do the same thing he's sending the 12 out to do in chapter 9. And in verse 10 through 12, we read this. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets. Notice he doesn't just say leave. He says, go out to its streets, into the main intersection of the city, into that hub of busyness, and do what? You go out there and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near, implied, and you rejected it. Verse 12, I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that Day for Sodom than for that city. Now think about that. You remember what happened to Sodom, right? Ah, Nothing but fire and brimstone rained down out of heaven, totally annihilating the city. More tolerable than Sodom. Which had righteous lot in it and had the angels who would not hear. Jesus says, when you're shaking the 
dust off your feet in that city, you're saying judgment's coming. And it's going to be really bad for you. Now, you still might be wondering, but yeah, Jack, I understand this is the 12. And I understand this is the 70. But really, Jesus hadn't died yet. The church hadn't started yet. I mean, come on, this is still kind of a pre-church thing. Well, turn to Acts 13. Don't you hate that? There's always a verse somewhere that teaches us a little bit more about something. Acts 13:48 and this by the way this is one of the great texts on God's sovereign choice of those whom he chooses to save 13:48 of Acts When the Gentiles heard this, that's the gospel, Paul and Barnabas are preaching in Antioch. They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. They did it in the church as an example and obeyed Jesus' command. Try it sometime. Because Paul and Barnabas were not welcome in Antioch, they said, okay. We're leaving, and may your blood be on your own head. Now look down at Luke 9, verse 7 through 9. He's just said, talked about not being received in verse 5, and then they were sent out and started obeying Christ in verse 6. But look at verse 7. Now Herod, the tetrarch, heard of all that was happening, and he was greatly perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen again. And Herod said, I myself had John beheaded, but who is this man about whom I hear such things? And he kept trying to see him. I don't know about you, but when I was studying this passage, I thought, what is that doing there? What is that doing there? I mean, doesn't that look kind of weird to you? I mean, we're talking about Jesus saying, this is what you need to do, and then they're out, and, and then right after this, we're back, and he's saying, and then they returned, thinking, what is this Herod thing doing in there? I mean, couldn't he put it after? You know, wouldn't that have been better? Well, the reason he did this, the reason Luke inserts this little bit of history into the text is to make this point. That when Jesus was sending the disciples out to preach the gospel, they were in danger of death. We know this because Luke takes this little historical bit of information about Herod and he puts it in here out of chronological order. At the time Jesus was talking to his disciples right before sending them out, John had not had his head severed from his body. That didn't happen for another while still. But Luke, wanting to make the point that Jesus was sending the disciples out into grave danger 
to preach the gospel takes an event that he knows because he's writing after the fact happened later and he inserts it into this discussion of Jesus with the twelve and they're being sent out and returning. Mark gives us quite a bit of details about John's execution in Mark 6. And Mark tells us that what happened was, as John was preaching, Herod was interested, went to hear him, and John confronted him about his sin and his adulterous relationship with his brother Philip's wife. And of course, he didn't like it. And his wife, Herodias, really didn't like it. And you know, hell hath no fury like a woman's scorn. And so she worked it out so that John's head would be severed from his body through her daughter. That's why Luke reaches forward out of chronological order, grabs this historical incident puts it in the text here to let us know that right after Jesus said, and they do not receive you, that the do not receive you really means not just they don't want to hear the truth, but they may kill you for the truth like they did John. Now, if you're looking there and you're thinking, but Jack, you know, I'm following your bit of logic, but are you sure? I mean, can we read that much into do not receive? I mean, is it really there? Yes, and I'll show you why. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. This is the parallel account of our text in Luke chapter 9, where Matthew gives us quite a bit more information about what Jesus said in between Luke chapter 9 verse 5 and verse 6. 9 5 is when he says, and if they do not receive you, leave Shake the dust off your feet. Verse 6 is, and they went out and preached the gospel and healed the sick. In between the white spaces, we have this section in Matthew 10, verses 16 through 38, where Matthew tells us a whole bunch of detail about what Jesus said on that day before sending them out. Look at Matthew 10, verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Think about that. Think about that. Sheep in the midst of wolves. I don't know if you know anything about sheep, But when I used to go fishing in the mountains of Idaho, I would run into flocks of sheep. And they are dumb. (laughs) If somebody isn't there to herd them out of the road, they would just let you run over them. They, They don't run fast. They don't have sharp teeth. They don't have sharp claws. They're usually clueless of danger. And often panic and hold still when scared. A wolf can walk right up to a sheep and bite its neck and kill it. Wolves, on the other hand, are fast and ferocious and cunning. And they eat sheep. Rip them to pieces and devour sheep. And Jesus encourages his disciples by saying, listen, this is all it's going to be like. 
You're going to be like sheep in the midst of ravenously hungry wolves. That's all. Look at verse 17. But beware of men. For they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Here, Jesus tells us that the wolves represent men who will arrest the disciples and try to use the courts against them because of their faith in Christ. And why? Because Christians go about loving people, doing good, submitting to the government, proclaiming the gospel, warning people of sin and judgment, trying to see them saved from the eternal torments of hell. The world, because it is controlled by Satan, can not stomach the proclamation of the truth or a holy life. They can't handle it. You're committing a hate crime if you tell somebody, hey, drunkenness is a sin, homosexuality is a sin, abortion is murder. That's a hate crime. But if you kill people, that's okay. If you do drugs, if you lead people astray, if you let people perish, that's fine. Keep your views to yourself. Don't talk about doctrine, it's divisive. There is to be toleration. Accept people. They're different. We all have our own views. We all have our own things we like to do. I mean, come on. Toleration is important. Accept with biblical Christianity. Accept with Christians who strive to live a holy life and confront sin and preach the gospel. Those kind of people are hated. Oh, you can be a Christian and blend in if you want. You could be a liberal Christian, do social work, give to charity, be a moral upstanding citizen, but never speak the truth, never proclaim the gospel, never confront sin, and they will love you. But you live like Jesus is telling us to live in this text. They will censor you and ridicule you and condemn you. And not show any tolerance for you. Because you are a fanatic. You actually live like you say you believe. In verses 19 and 20, Jesus promises them that they will be given divine revelation during those times they're in trial, so they will know what to say. But look at verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name. And it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Here we see that becoming a Christian is not just a ticket to health, wealth, and prosperity. It's not just an easy way to live. Hey, man, become a Christian. You can come to church in an air conditioning room, get a cool little pep talk, eat donuts. I mean, being a Christian is great. Man, a whole bunch of people gather together. You can find a wife, find a husband. They don't smoke, drink, cuss, or chew. It's fun. That's not what Jesus says. Jesus says here, That the closest people in family relationships 
will lobby to have each other put to death. Paul, as he was traveling around on his missionary journey, after that text we just read, when he was driven out of Antioch, went to Iconium and all those cities, and Acts 14.22 says he made it his practice as going through those cities to tell his disciples, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. You must go through tribulations in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. You side with Jesus, you are at odds with the world. And I know many of you know this from personal experience. You've had parents get very angry with you, or children, or brothers, or sisters, or close, intimate friends. Why? Because you loved them and tried to speak the truth to them, and now they hate you for it. Imagine your own brother and sister standing on the witness stand saying, There that man is. There that woman is. They condemned me. They said I would go to hell. They're intolerant. Put them to death. That's what Jesus says will happen. And some of you have experienced this to one degree or another. As a matter of fact, I am sure that all of you who have diligently followed Christ have experienced this to one degree or another. Look at verse 23. Whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Now this is very interesting. And this is a whole hinge piece in the text. Because Jesus says, listen, you can't even go through the cities and the Son of Man is going to come. Well, the second coming hasn't happened yet. So what what does that mean? What it means is this, that Jesus has been addressing the 12, but now he is reaching forward through all the ages of the church, through the tribulation, all the way to the second coming of Christ. That's what it means. It means he has now left, I want to talk to you 12, to I want to talk to all of my followers. And... When Luke says they do not receive you and so shake off your dust, shake the dust off your feet, Matthew reads, flee to the next city. And did you notice that though Jesus is speaking to the twelve, he's talking about the end of the tribulation, the second coming, when Christ returns? This is for us now. What's for us? Look at verse 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign the members of his household? That Jesus' reasoning is simple. Listen, if they hate me and they persecute me and they want to kill me, Do you think they're going to be nice to you because you are my followers? If they're going to do this to the Lord and Master, what are they going to do to you? That's what he's saying. Look at verse 26. Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and whatever you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim on the housetops. Why does Jesus say that? Because Jesus knows that we tend to fear men. That we don't want to suffer persecution. 
That we don't want to hurt. We don't want to have to go inconvenience. We don't want to be at odds with people. We don't like conflict if we're normal. He knows all that. And aren't those the very things that make you not want to share the gospel when you know you should? Oh. You think, I've got an opportunity. I should speak. And then nothing happens. You're like a king toes. Nothing comes out. Look at verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus' point is, if you want to be scared of somebody, let me tell you who to be scared of. It's not your neighbor. It's not your boss. It's not the atheist on the street corner. It's God Almighty. Be scared of him because he can kill you physically and then kill you eternally in the lake of fire. Fear him. Verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Why does Jesus mention this? Because it's a comfort to know. But listen. Yeah, as a Christian, you have to suffer. Yeah, it may put you at odds with mom or dad or brother or sister or best friend. Yeah, you may lose opportunities. You may have to suffer inconvenience. Yes, it may even cost you your life. But God's always watching. He's always there. You never go through any trial, any circumstance that he is not there. And guess what? He loves you. He loves you. He loves sparrows, birds. Of course he loves you. He even has your hairs numbered. Do you even have your hairs numbered? Some of you probably could. That's huge. But did you notice the threefold command? Don't miss it. Verse 26, do not fear. Verse 28, do not fear them. Verse 31, do not fear them. Now, what do you suppose is the application of that? Do not fear them. That is the application. Do not let the fear of the what ifs or of scorn or hatred or ridicule or persecution or intimidation stop you from living a holy life from proclaiming the truth in love to people. That's what he's saying. You know how terrorists operate? By terrorizing people. That's why they're called terrorists. They scare people. And when people are scared, they use that people's fear against them. Terrorists want something from you. Wants the combination to the vault or whatever. Do me. Or I'll kill you. But you're a Christian. You can't wait to see Jesus. Okay, then shoot me. I'm not telling you. See, they have no power over you. So then what do they do? They try and scare you another way. Well, if you don't kill, if you, if you don't, aren't afraid of dying and you don't care if I kill you, then what about your wife or your child or your family? What if I kill these other 50 people that you don't even know? Huh? You're going to have their blood on your head? What are they doing? They're trying to use fear against you to manipulate you. Listen, they're lying. If a terrorist 
kills 50 people because you don't give them the combination of the vault. Listen, they killed the 50 people, not you. And do you think on judgment day when they stand before Christ, Christ's going to go, huh, it's your fault, not his. Come on, they're manipulating you. They're using terrorist tactics. They're trying to use fear against you. And Jesus says, do not fear them. Three times in a row. To make this point. That when you go out into the world as a Christian, you're going to experience fear. And you need to train your disciples this. It's scary standing up for Christ. When the world hates him, when the world doesn't want to hear about him, they don't want to hear God's law, they don't want to hear God's truth, they don't want to be told that they're going to hell, that judgment is coming, they don't want anybody messing with their seared conscience. They just want to live their life, enjoy their sin, and just die and hope that evolution is true. Perpetua was born in Carthage, North Africa, about 176 AD. Her father was a wealthy unbeliever, and Perpetua was intelligent. She was attractive, had a good education, a husband, and a baby boy. In 2002, Emperor Septimus Severius began to persecute Christians. Perpetua was arrested for her faith in Christ. Her father begged her to recant, and she pointed to a water pot and asked, Father, do you see this vessel? Can it be called by any other name than what it is? So also, I cannot call myself by any other name than what I am, a Christian. In prison, her father begged her with sobs to renounce her faith. She refused. Perpetua and a handful of other believers were then tried in the open marketplace, where again her father appeared carrying her infant son and holding him out and begging her to deny Christ. For the sake of her son, she refused and was sentenced to execution by torture and was dragged back to prison. When she asked to see her baby a final time, she was refused. On the night before her death, she wrote, quote, I saw that I should not fight with beasts, but with the devil. I knew the victory to be mine, end quote. On March 7th, 2002, the Christians were marched into the arena where Perpetua was gored and thrown about by an enraged heifer. Though wounded, she survived, fixed her hair as she stood up and covered herself as her garment had been torn to maintain her modesty. She stood up with dignity and courage and looked the enraged heifer in the face. And it would not charge her. So a gladiator was ordered to strike her down with the sword. And though he was trained to kill, he walked up, pulled out his sword and could not put her to death. She was so courageous. So she grabbed the tip of his sword, placed it on her throat and said, obey your order. And he run her through and she fell down dead. All this happened as her unbelieving family watched. All this happened in front of huge crowds of pagans who watched 
in awe and wonder that this frail Christian woman could have so much courage in the face of death. And at that very moment, the jailer Pundus repented and gave his life to Christ. Satan will use your husband. Satan will use your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, money, loss of promotion, loss of popularity, loss of fame, whatever he can to get you to not speak the truth. He hates the truth. He hates the gospel with the utmost hatred. And in verses 32 and 33, Jesus adds one more motivation. Now think about the list he has already given. Why should you preach the gospel as my disciple? One, because you will be given what to say if you get into a hard situation. Two, that if you endure to the end, you will be saved. Three, that he... That is Christ will come again to rule the earth and rescue you and you will rule and reign with him. Four, you are not to be above your master, but if I have to suffer, you have to suffer too. Five, that everything will be brought out on judgment day and no one will get away with any false accusation because all will be brought to the truth and judged accurately. Sixth, that Jesus commands you not to fear men, but to fear him, to live a godly life and to proclaim the truth. Seven, Jesus reminds you that men kill the body but God can kill both body and soul in hell so you better fear him and eighth be comforted knowing that no matter what you suffer on behalf of Christ he God is watching Christ is watching his grace is sufficient and it never happens to you without a good purpose without a good purpose only heaven will tell the impact that perpetuous death had on all those people who watched that day. Now if Jesus stopped here. You would think. Whew, whew, that's enough. That's plenty. But he is not through yet. He is not through yet. And in verses 32 and 33, he pulls out the granddaddy of them all, which is kind of a two-edged sword. And he says this. Verse 32, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. You think about that. Get your mind off of this world, off your job, off your stuff. Go all the way past death after that to the great white throne judgment. And think about this. There you are. A sinner saved by grace. And all the holy angels, myriads of myriads and ten thousands time ten thousands are all around the throne of God and the saints of all the ages from Adam all the way up through this time, all the way past this time, all the way through the tribulation and the millennium, all of them are standing around the throne of God and all the demons and Satan and the Antichrist and the beast. And they're all watching. And Jesus 
with the voice of a tumult, with a voice like thunder, makes all the heavenly hosts look at you. And he says, do you see this man? Do you see this woman here? They were faithful to me. They did not deny me before men. And he says, Father, I am welcoming them into my kingdom. Can you imagine that? And are you going to be sitting there going, oh, but I lost my job. When Christ professes you before the Father in heaven. But what if you fear men? What if you get scared? What if you don't proclaim the gospel? You don't witness. You just call yourself a Christian. Then what? Verse 33 But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven. Things are different now. They're way different. Christ comes in glory. You're all fearful but excited because after all, you know, you've been involved in church. You've gave quite a bit of money to church. You spend a lot of time serving in church and being involved in social programs and and doing a lot of religious deeds. It's true, you've never told anybody about Jesus, preached the gospel, and lived a holy life, but for the most part, you've been religious. And as you stand there before the bar of God, and you look in the face of Jesus who is on the throne, his eyes are like a flame of fire, and inside of him, this holy anger and hatred towards you burns. And he looks at you and you know he knows everything about you. He knows your hypocrisy. He knows that you did not follow him during your hypocritical life here on earth. And he says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. And two brawny angels carry you and pitch you into the lake of fire where you will be tormented forever. That is something to think about in this life. Before that happens, you do not want to be there. And if you've never given your heart to Christ, you need to do it now. You need to cry out to God now and not wait a moment longer. Today is always the day of salvation. Christ died to save sinners. You give your life to Christ. You trust in his death and burial and resurrection. He will save you. He will change you. He will turn you into the kind of soldier he wants you to be. And then you will follow Christ because he will make you that way. You look at your life now and you realize this isn't me. Are you Christ's? My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. What did we just read here? Whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my father who is in heaven. What does that mean? It means that when you're saved and you've given your life to Christ, you cannot but speak. Is it scary? Yes. Do you have to suffer? Yes. Do you like persecution? No. Do you like suffering? No. But do you love Christ more? Yes. Now you think, okay, 
All right. I know I love the Lord. I don't love him like I should. And I don't share the gospel like I should. But is he over? No. He's not. He anticipates another false concept that people have. And will have about about him. Many know that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And many know that Matthew chapter 5, in the Beatitudes, in the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the what? The peacemakers. For theirs is the kingdom of God. And they know this. And they interpret that to mean that the ultimate goal of Christianity is to not cause any waves, to lay down, to lay low, to blend in, to not get dogmatic. There's other ways to heaven. There's other saviors. Everybody with good intentions will get there. God isn't that angry about your sin. But this is not what Jesus meant. Jesus is not saying blend into the world that hates me. Become friends with the world so it likes you. Which is what many churches are doing today. James speaks straight at us when he says in James 4.4, You adulteresses! Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Jesus doesn't want you blending in. Jesus wants you sticking out. White, pure, courageous, noble, humble, fearless, not timid. That's what he wants for you. Haven't you read in your Bible that the Christian life is a war, is a fight, is a battle, is a struggle? Do you think that only applies to people who lived 2,000 years ago or during the Reformation? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations in every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your disobedience is complete. He says, listen, we aren't using bombs. We aren't using knives. We aren't using swords. We aren't going out there with picket signs. Our battle is a battle of truth. It's a battle for the souls of men and women. It is a battle to take those who speak lies and who have been deceived by Satan and to take their thoughts and try to bring them into subjection with the truth of God's word. These are the weapons of our warfare, a holy life and the word of God and the Holy Spirit. And God empowers us and he drives us, compels us to speak the truth. And his word is like that hammer that shatters rock and a fire that consumes. So that people don't just blow God off. Because you won't let them. And they're either going to come to reckon with who they are and who Christ is or they're going to hate you. You can guarantee it. Look at verse 34. Do not think 
that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword for I came to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and the man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Did you see that? If you're not willing to live for Christ, if you're not willing to share the gospel, if you're not willing to stand up for the truth, you are not worthy of Christ. He says it three times. Three times. Jesus came to save and raise up an army of spiritual soldiers who would go out into the world with holy living, speaking the truth of the gospel, confronting sin, calling sinners to repentance, that those people might bring other people into the kingdom so that they wouldn't perish. And part of your role as a discipler is to train those you disciple that this is what Christianity is about. It is a battle for truth and the souls of men. By His grace, you need to stay in rank, hold the line, live the truth, proclaim the truth, be a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And all that we have just read and surveyed from Matthew 10 comes in between Luke 9, 5 and 6. That's what Jesus told them on that day before they went out. And maybe quite a bit more. We don't know. Charles Spurgeon said the Christian will be sure to make enemies. It will be one of his objects to make none But if to do the right and to believe the true should cause him to lose every earthly friend, he will count it but a small loss since his great friend in heaven will yet be more friendly and reveal himself to him more graciously than ever. O ye who have taken up his cross, know ye not what your master said? I've come to set a man at variance against his father and a daughter against her mother and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. Christ is the great peacemaker, but before peace he brings war. Where the light cometh, the darkness must retire. Where truth is, the lie must flee. Or if it abideth, there must be stern conflict, for the truth cannot and will not lower its standard, and the lie must be trodden underfoot. If you follow Christ, you shall have all the dogs of the world yelping at your heels. If you would live so as to stand the test of the last tribunal, depend upon it, the world will not speak well of you. He who has the friendship of the world is an enemy to God. But if you are a true and faithful to the Most High, men will resent your unflinching fidelity since it is a testimony against their iniquities. Fearless of all consequences, you must do right. You will need the courage of a lion unhesitatingly to pursue a course which shall turn your best friend into your fiercest foe. 
But for the love of Jesus, you must thus be courageous. For the truth's sake, to hazard reputation and affection is such a deed that to do it constantly, you will need a degree of moral principle which only the Spirit of God can work in you. Yet turn not your back like a coward, but play the man. Follow right manfully in your master's steps, for he has traversed this rough way before you. Better a brief warfare and eternal rest than false peace and everlasting torment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for men like Spurgeon who told your truth and the way it is. We thank you for our instruction from Luke and the expansion from Matthew, from your inspired word, which tells us very clearly and plainly that living for you in a world of unbelievers is a hard but right way. That it is a battle, that it is a war, and we are called to be soldiers of the truth. And Father, I pray that if there is anyone here who has never repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus Christ, that right now, in their seat, they would cry out to you, that you would save them, that you would transform them, that they would cry out and admit that they are sinners and that Christ is the only Savior, that they would beg you to transform their lives and deliver them from the wrath to come and to make them the good soldiers of Jesus Christ. For the rest of us who know you, Father, I pray that we would be so brave, so courageous, so godly that the world would not be able to disregard our testimony. That through living and speaking, we would proclaim your truth to the world, suffering whatever consequences may come, knowing that we are to fear you above anything this world can throw at us. Father, we look forward to standing before you holy and blameless with great joy on judgment day, hearing you proclaim our name to the Father, to the angels and all the saints of ages, past, present, and future. Because we, by your grace, have followed after you. Help us to be this way. Do not let go of us. Help us to persevere that we might honor you. In Christ's name, amen.